0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow.
1: Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. For today's show, that picks up where Lean In left off. With the gender gap increasingly acknowledged, and understood. Employees and employers, women and men alike, are asking, how do we get past where we are now? How do we get more diverse talent in the room? And when we do, how do we make that room actually more inclusive, more innovative, more productive? And how do we integrate work and life at all stages of life? And how do we get past the socially rooted biases that make all of this All too often seem impossible. We're going to explore all of this today with Joanne Littman, author of the new book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne is a veteran journalist, serving most recently as chief content officer at Gannett and editor-in-chief of USA Today. She began her career as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, ultimately rising to deputy managing editor, and note, the first woman to attain that post, supervising coverage that won three Pulitzer Prizes. A noted expert on women in the workplace, Joanne has spoken at major organization and events, including the Aspen Ideas Festival, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and the women in Cable. Television's National Leadership Conference, which she keynoted with Katie Couric. I couldn't be more honored and excited to welcome her to Women at Work to speak with us today. So Joanne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Joanne, in this book, I have to tell you, I loved every word of it. It was accessible. I think you did an amazing job of summing up a lot of complicated information and kind of bringing to life things that are hard to make sense of. So my first question to you, is about one of those places that sort of defies logic. We put so much effort into diversity training, and yet it's made the gender gap worse. Why? What's going on with this?
0: The the research is quite remarkable on this front. It really is amazing. There is a – there's actually a Harvard Business School professor uh, named Frank Dobbin who looked at 30 years of diversity training at more than 700 companies – And he concluded that for women as well as for African-Americans, it actually made things worse. Not only did the diversity training not work, but had there been no diversity training, the situation for women and and, um, African-Americans would actually have been better. They would have made more progress. And he looked at um, a number of factors about why this was the case. But what was really um, stunning to me was one of the bottom line factors was resentment it was that the men who were primarily taking this training were feeling beaten up on and as a matter of fact i spoke with uh, one of the men i interviewed for that's what she said is a veteran diversity trainer and he said to me look when we started this training you know 30 plus years ago we literally it was really about beating up these guys on the head with a two by four and if we made them feel guilty great if we made them cry even better and and (laughs) and he said We now realize the error of our ways. It really backfired.
1: I wonder if it's almost the same way that when you scold children too overtly, the way physical abuse doesn't teach anybody anything. If the diversity training was meant to make you feel bad and guilty, it's sort of not surprising that it backfired. Nobody's going to be open to learning in a situation like that
0: that's exactly right and yet um companies spend you know billions of dollars even now on diversity training and uh despite the fact that we've seen that it that it doesn't work um, so yeah so so there are now new ways of training which we can talk about as as we progress here on unconscious bias training which tries to take the guilt and the um you know, the fear mongering out of it. Uh, That has shortcomings as well, but it is something that's slightly different than the the traditional diversity training. Right, because
1: it's something at Wharton People Analytics we've been pursuing as well. And it seems like the Holy Grail is not just to get people to to become aware of their biases and change their behavior, but to have that change last over time.
0: That's right. That's right. You really need to... It really has to come from the top of the organization. We're really talking about culture change. And my book, That's What She Said, is bottom line about how do we change the culture. Mm -hmm. And I should say, you know, just to back up for a second the moment, the the reason that I wrote That's What She Said um, is because there's so many issues that women face at work. Uh, Right now, we are focused very heavily on sexual harassment and the worst of the sexual predators. And there's a feeling, I think, among particularly some men that, okay, if we weed out those bad apples, it's all going to be okay. But the fact is, that is simply a symptom. The predators are a symptom of a culture that we have to change that involves so many other issues. Uh, the women, the things that we women face, put up with every day, everything from being interrupted feeling marginalized, feeling that our voices are not heard, uh, which translates directly into fewer promotions, lower pay. All of these issues are everyday issues, and it's those issues put together that create a culture that at its extreme enables the harassment. And, And the reason I wrote the book is because we all face these issues. Women talk amongst ourselves all the time about the issues we face at work. But what we haven't done is talk to men, And, um, you know, there's two side effects from that. And one is that men are really not aware of so many of the issues that we do face. And a second is that we unintentionally demonize the good guys, perfectly good guys who, if they were aware, would be willing to, you know, be our allies in trying to bridge the gap. They just don't know how to do it so this so I'm is hoping to give them a toolkit
1: <laughs> right so this is one of those points of intersection that i think is enormously important and hard for a lot of people to understand how do we start talking to each other about this so that we don't alienate each other before we get to the heart of the discussion
0: right so you know what fascinating research done by catalyst which i'm sure you're familiar with which is a nonprofit that looks at working women They did a a survey a few years ago of senior executive men to say, what would prevent you, what would be a barrier to you becoming a champion for women in the workplace? 51% of those men cited lack of awareness of exactly what the issues are. Mm -hmm. 74% of the men cited fear. They fear, in part, loss of status among other men because they fear it will make them look weak by advocating for women. Uh, and they fear saying the wrong thing and I think any woman who's ever been in a mixed gender conversation where the topic comes up of parity gender parity women in the workplace and you'll see that the men just like kind of they look stricken <laughs> they 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 shut down they don't speak they wander away if they can possibly get away um, they don't engage and I think that what I what the purpose of that's what she said, is to really make these issues discussable. And I do feel like we are at a moment in time where that is possible. I think in the wake of the Me Too movement, this is top of mind for all of us, and it is an opportunity to engage, for men and women to engage on these issues with each other.
1: Without a doubt, and I also think it crosses gender but boundaries into issues of all different kind of diversity issues, because it's really about a dominant group and a non-dominant group and the norms that have been taught within a particular, particular social group.
0: And I'm so glad you brought that up, because that's what she said focuses on women. But so much of the research that I cite, and I have a voluminous amount of research and told a lot of stories throughout the book of, of men who are trying to close this gap. But it really applies not just to women, but to any underrepresented group. So we're talking ethnic and racial minorities, LGBTQ, uh, the disabled, people who are not in the mainstream dominant group um, find themselves in these situations where, you know, because you're in the minority, you are not hurt as much. You don't get the same level of respect. Um, and, uh, and that goes for, you know, there, there is a gender component to that, but there's a minority component
1: to that. Without a doubt. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Joanne Littman, the author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. So, Joanne, with the time that we have today, I want to walk through some of what the context is in which these problems are occurring and understand them, and talk about some of the strategies we have for working through them. And one of the sure. things, there were a couple of issues, that you lots of issues, actually, in the book that you wrote really brilliantly about, but in particular, um, the idea of the respect gap. Can you explain to us what that includes and how it manifests?
0: Absolutely. So men and there's a huge respect gap between men and women. And frankly, when I talk with women, uh, professional women, this comes up again and again. It is sort of a root cause issue. So and these are things, by the way, that a lot of women think is very specific to themselves individually. And it turns out it actually is specific to our entire gender. So, for example, um, if you have a man and a woman with exactly the same title, whether that title is CEO or school principal, you name it, whatever the title is, um, a man will have more respect, garner more respect, and actually have more power than a woman in the exact same position. The women are seen as... Uh, what sociologists would call illegitimate authorities. In other words, they are acting outside of what gender norms are expected, and so they are seen as not being legitimate leaders. Um, And we've seen this throughout. I I, um, cited uh, a number of different kinds of professions um, and talked to professionals throughout. So, for example, there was a a researcher who who did a cross-section of young professionals um, and asked them how they would convince their boss they had a great idea that they wanted to sell to their boss, and um, and ask them how they would do it. And for half of these participants, the boss was named Bob, and for half the participants, the boss was named Barb. The participants who had Bob as their boss showed all kinds of deference and kowtowing to Bob, and um, you know, very, very, very much deferential. Mm-hmm. Those who had Barb as a boss tended to basically sort of give Barb orders, like this is what you need to do to be more successful. They, they showed more respect to Bob. We see it in medicine. Female doctors are disproportionately introduced by their first names, mm-hmm. while male doctors are generally referred to by the honorific as Dr. So-and-so. One of the most interesting examples I came across is I talked to several transgender scientists. Um, now, transgender people, obviously, I mean, there's massive differences when, when you transition in your entire life. There's so many things in your life that change. But what was most fascinating to me was um, uh, the case of uh, a scientist named Ben Barris, who's at Stanford, who is one of the most um, respected uh, scientists in his field. And don't ask me to, to explain his field because I don't it <laughs> but, but Dr. Barris talks about how um dr barris was was born as barbara barris and barbara barris as a teenager um was was a brilliant student and was steered by her guidance counselor in high school to go to a local college and barbara said no i want to go to mit so barbara goes to mit at mit there is a problem set that no one in the entire grade can get except for barbara and the professor accuses her of cheating and having her boyfriend solve it for her. So you fast forward you know, several decades, and Barbara Barris is a brilliant scientist. Barbara transitions um, in middle age. Um, so Ben Barris, after his transition, uh, gives a presentation at a major scientific conference. And in the audience, one scientist turns to another scientist and says, wow. That's Ben Barris. He is so much smarter than his sister, Barbara.
1: It is such an astonishing example.
0: Stunning. Stunning. And I just want to read you something that what Dr. Barris actually said, because this blew me away. So Dr. Barris, who now has, you know, like I said, major life changes right. after you go through a transition. Dr. Barris said, this is why women are not breaking into academic jobs at any appreciable rate, which, by the way, goes for any professional mm-hmm. job. Dr. Barra said, it's not child care. It is not family responsibilities. I have thought this a million times. I am taken more seriously. I'm getting respect. And he actually said, I could actually get through a whole sentence without some guy interrupting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like I hate to laugh because it's so sad, but it's true. and It's, it's the, very true. And, and it, in these examples, there's a number of things that I think are important to point out here, which is that, One is how um, there's this automatic reaction, this assumption of ability that comes with the gender identification.
0: That's right. So women, men are assumed competent until proven otherwise, and women it is the reverse.
1: And it's also Um, affecting a social dynamic because when you talk about the dynamic of being deferential to your boss versus oppositional – that then has a whole ripple effect on the relationship. Never mind when um, doctors walk into a patient's room and refer to the female doctor by her first name, they're belittling her in a setting where everybody has to work in a hierarchical structure.
0: That's right. And for the the other thing that I heard from female doctors, by the way, was that um, very often, I think every female doctor I spoke to said she had been mistaken for a nurse. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, several of them told me situations where they were the senior physician in the room, they were in hospital, they had a male medical student following them to observe them, and the patient would say, I don't want to talk to you, the nurse, I want to talk to the real doctor and point to the med student. This this has direct correlation in every area, across areas in business. One of the really interesting and and troubling um, facts that I came across was how Um, women who reach the pinnacle of business, who become CEOs, first of all, they're more likely to be targeted by hostile investors who try and kick them out. They are more likely to get the CEO spot in the first place if the company is in trouble. And there was research done that showed that 42% of female CEOs were given the job when the company was imploding.
1: So it's like Um, they're sacrificial lambs.
0: Well, it, you know, it's called the glass cliff. They're marched right mm-hmm. off the glass cliff. They make it the, through the glass ceiling, except it's actually a cliff because the company is the, – the, the reason they get the job is because the company is in terrible shape. And I have to say, I can't let my own industry off the hook either. Um, Rockefeller Foundation did a survey, uh, a study of, um, of coverage, of media coverage, and found that 80% of news reports – blame female CEOs when a company is doing poorly. They attribute it to the female CEO. Less than a third of those media reports will attribute it to a male CEO. So when we look at
1: this chain of biases that are impacting everything from the way we perceive authority to the way we interact with it to the way we shape society's understanding of it, um, it's focusing. It's interesting because it's focusing on this stark difference between how men and women are treated. How about the difference between? Is it the men who are doing this, or do women do this too?
0: So everyone does this. I mean, there's actually uh, there was a few research did a uh, uh, a study of you know men and women to ask. It's trying to get to the bottom of would you rather have a male or female boss? Because most people will say, well, really, it's okay. Well, they found that both men and women prefer male bosses, and in fact, were willing to earn less money to to actually take a pay cut to work for a male boss. It starts, though, and I think this is so important, everything that we're seeing, a lot of it is unconscious bias. It's not sexist people who say, I don't want women to succeed. It's people who are biased against women in ways they don't even realize, and so their actions are not conscious, but they have a huge impact. And what's really important about this is this unconscious bias does not start in the workplace. It starts way earlier. It starts in infancy. Um, For example, mothers of babies routinely overestimate how quickly their sons begin to crawl, but they underestimate how quickly their daughters begin to crawl.
1: So the assumption of physical Mm -hmm. prowess is made in infancy.
0: And not just physical prowess. Parents of two-year-olds who write into Google, is my child a genius? They ask Google that question. They're more than twice as likely to ask that about a two-year-old boy as a two-year-old girl. And then in first graders, one of the studies in uh, That's What She Said that absolutely blew my mind is first-grade math students. First graders were asked to take a math test. Their names were taken off their tests. The tests were graded by first-grade teachers, all of whom were women, by the way. The teachers were women. When the names were off of the tests, the, uh, the girls outscored the boys. Then those same papers were graded with names, and this time the boys outscored the girls.
1: So that means that the teachers were biased.
0: The teachers were biased in ways they did not even realize they were giving the benefit of doubt to the boys, but not to the girls. Um, and this, you, you have instance of this through junior high, through high school, um, there's, there's studies of high school girls and, and the subtle ways in which they are discouraged from, from um, being leaders. Um, and then by the time you get to college, uh, a female student needs to have an A average to be seen as the equivalent of a male student with a B average. And, again, that translates into um, directly into now these young people go into the workplace and they're, you're, they're starting out with the women at a disadvantage. And by the way, in college, we now know, of course, um, that well over half of um, undergrad degrees are, um, uh, are, are by women. Uh, and yet male professor I mean all professors, I should say, call on male students more frequently than they call on female Yeah, it's an
1: unbelievably far-reaching and pernicious problem. By the way, we need to take a short break, but don't go away. Joanna's with us for the rest of the show. We're going to continue this conversation. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you are listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a moment.
0: listening to Women at Work on Business Radio Sirius XM 111 Here again is Laura Zaro Welcome
1: back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed and lead in the workplace. I'm your host Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm talking with Joanne Litman, author of the just released book That's what she said: What men need to know and women need to tell them about working together. Champion women should be a worthy goal in and of itself, but if that's not enough, the economic arguments are incontrovertible. Adding women makes work groups more creative. Companies with female CFOs make fewer, better acquisitions than those with male CFOs. Firms with the most female board members outperform those with the least by almost every financial measure. Mixed groups can even solve a murder more accurately than single sex groups. In short, equality is a business imperative, it's the answer. The question, however, is how to get there, which is exactly what we're talking about today with our guest, Joanne Littman, author of What She Said, um, what women, What men need to know and women need to tell them about working together. So, Joanne, before the break, we were talking about this kind of um, deep respect gap that's driven by a great deal of kind of unconscious biases and social training. And we were talking about its impact That it starts in childhood and it comes into adulthood. Tell me how it factors into um, zero sum thinking.
0: Oh, sure. So there's been quite a bit of research on how men and women um, perceive things. And so, um, and a lot of this and a lot of the unconscious bias also stems from childhood. So if you think about children and and linguists like Deborah uh, Tannen and George, Uh, Georgetown, um, have observed this, children playing. If you look at how children play, girls learn how to play with each other by working cooperatively together, playing cooperatively. Boys learn with games where there's a winner and a loser. And if you fast forward to adulthood, that's how they approach work as well. So there's a very interesting research that shows that um, men, but not women, the world as sort of a zero-sum game Um, and uh, in fact women who earn more than their husbands uh, the research shows their husbands are more likely to cheat Um, the women are less likely to cheat and the more they out earn their husbands, the more likely they are to do things to to buck up his masculinity to do things like more housework or more cooking you know more things to 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 prop him up Um, which I found absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, and and, and sad, but so fascinating. Sad that, well, so get this. So, this one, this was another one that blew me away. There was a, I believe it was UVA, studied undergraduate couples, male female couples. And they had them take what they said was an intelligence test. Well, it turned out this test was sort of a bogus test um, because what they were really doing was measuring response. So, when they told a um, man that his girlfriend outscored him, he took a huge hit to his self-esteem. Um, if they told a woman that her, that her boyfriend outscored her, it made no difference. Whether she outscored him or vice versa, it didn't affect her either way. But it really wounded him if she outscored him. And the concept is that men feel that there's this zero-sum game that her win is his loss. And that, again, translates directly into um, the workplace. Uh, Where you see, and I've seen it myself where, you know, there have been times in my own career where uh, maybe I've gotten a promotion or something like that, and I will notice that I'll get, you know, emails from every woman in the organization and radio silence from the men. Um, The women are like, this is great, one of us is getting (laughs) a promotion, and the men are like, "Uh uh-oh. She's getting something. It means I am not getting it. So
1: I want to connect the dots back to some of what we were talking about before, because it sounds like it's the intersection of two kind of pernicious problems that we're not aware of enough. So one is that with the kind of built-in respect gap, the biases that exist, there is this both unconscious and socialized expectation that men are going to be dominant, more capable, more powerful, and in charge and that given the ways that boys play where it's com- deeply and inherently competitive it's a game of one-upsmanship all the time it seems like when you bring those two things together and instead of men and women they if you equate the workplace with play women are looking at it as collaborative men are looking at it as competitive that the combination of the game of one-upsmanship then with women it the frustration at not winning gets compounded by the fact that you're losing to somebody that on some deeper level you see as inferior or you expect will be socially branding you as inferior. Is that a fair way of summing it up?
0: That's an unfortunate but fair way of summing it up, yes. Yes. And there are things that you can do to combat that, but I think that's one of the essential issues. And, And added to the scenario that you just painted is the fact that the modern workplace was actually conceived of after World War II. It was built by men, for men, essentially on a military hierarchical model. And so there are so many even left over here, even now where we're, you know, every company's transforming and our business ways we do business is transforming, but there, we're still built on the vestiges of a model that was built for men, by men, and women are trying every day, and we make a thousand tiny little adjustments every single day to fit into that world. And um, you know, everything from one um, what, what of the fun facts here. Um, I am um, always in my office freezing cold. I have a <laughs> heater. I have wool, th- you know throws. I've got tajmitas, You name it. I even have gloves. I occasionally will work in gloves on my computer. And um, I just thought it was me and I actually even said it to my doctor and my thin skin, like literally. But it turns out that office thermostats were set since the nineteen sixties, have been set using the the model of a one hundred and fifty pound man. Now 150-pound man, any man, that men have a faster metabolism than women. They 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 run hotter than women, which is why women are freezing in offices. Right. And, and men
1: are also in a shirt, a tie, and a jacket and long wool pants where we could be in a dress.
0: Right. We could be in and, – and in heels. And by the way, the thing with heels – Another thing I never realized, I always wore heels. I've, I've worked in largely male environments. I've always worn heels. I got short, but I felt like I needed to be taller to, to kind of be on par with the men. But what I found, the research tells you, is that taller women earn 8% more than shorter women. So I unconsciously was trying to make myself look bigger <laughs> right. in, in their eyes, which is Fascinating, um, but there's a hundred other, a thousand other adjustments that we make. So, for example, women's speech patterns are different than male speech patterns. Um, women are much more likely to use qualifiers like "sorry" or "I hope I don't bother you." If it's okay, right? Like These mine. socialized
1: ways of making ourselves less big, less offensive, easier that's to digest.
0: Right. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what we're doing. Is we are making ourselves, we are diminishing ourselves to be more socially acceptable. I mean, let's, let's think about that. I mean, we apologize all the time, and we are not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: we're just trying to diffuse the potential conflict of confrontation. I want to take a step backwards for a minute, though, because when you were talking about that difference between men and women, men are bigger, it's measured for them, it also raised for me um, the issue of biology which is another one of those places where there's a lot of information out there that if it's not consumed thoughtfully and considered and applied thoughtfully can really backfire. And where what are the meaningful biological differences between men and women in the workplace? And you write about this in the book. So could you talk a little bit about um, where the biological differences don't exist, like intelligence, and where they do exist in ways that we should be informed about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. So there's no difference in cognitive intelligence, but there is a difference in the way our brains and our bodies are wired. So for example, one of the things I I spent time with um, neuroscientists who were studying brains, and I went down into the lab with them and watched them as they studied and were taking pictures of brain neural pathways. And um, what they discovered, they weren't even looking for sex differences. They were studying mental illness. So they were looking at, at just a whole thousands of brains. And, um, but what they found was as they were studying these brains, instead what they found was these really stark differences between the way male and female brains are wired. So uh, male brains, if you look at the two hemispheres of the brain, male brains are wired front to back generally generally very strongly front to back. So they're focused on one thing at a time and, um, uh, and, and, and you know, very much sort of wired for action on one item. Female brains are wired primarily side to side, the hemisphere connecting, which is why women are multitaskers. Um, and it's why we can do more things at once. And so it doesn't affect its intelligence, but it does impact as one of the scientists explained to me, it, it, it impacts the way we perceive the world. The way that a woman perceives the world is different than the way a man perceives the world. There's biological differences, other biological differences that also really, really interesting. So tears. Okay. Yes. Crying I, at work. To, oh my gosh. I, so, so for that's what she said, I interviewed hundreds of people. I crisscrossed the country. I went around the globe. I was seeking out, in particular, men who are trying to close the gender gap. And um, so the first question I would generally ask men is, you know, what frustrates you, perplexes you, what do you flummox by, your female colleagues? And I was surprised at how many men mentioned tears. I am afraid she'll cry. And a number of men said, I'm so afraid that my that women will cry that I do not give them candid feedback, which is a terrible warning, a terrible danger if they don't get, if women don't get feedback. Right,
1: because then how do they improve and remain competitive and successful? Exactly.
0: exactly. But it turns out there is a biological reason. So when men, so much as smell subconsciously, a woman's tears, it lowers their testosterone level and it induces feelings of failure. So... That is one reason why why it freaks out men, because it makes them feel like a failure. So a it's cries.
1: not what we would think on the surface, that you feel bad for making somebody sad. It's that well, it makes you feel, which it probably does, but it, on a deeper level, it triggers those feelings of failure.
0: Uh, for men, big, uh, it triggers feelings of failure. The other thing is, also men, when they see a woman cry... Their belief is they have hurt her feelings. That's why all these men were saying, I'm afraid to give her candid feedback because she'll cry. They think it's because her feelings are hurt. It's not. When women cry at the office, the research shows, the reason they cry is because they're mad. They're (laughs) angry.
1: It's what we do do with feelings we can't express appropriately.
0: That's right. So when a woman cries, it is the same as when a man yells. But men do not interpret it that way. Um, and, and so there's this sort of biological divide between, um, between men and women.
1: So while women have spent an enormous amount of effort, um, I think, A, let's start with, I think the fear of women's crying is much bigger than the reality of women crying. Yes. And also that women have learned a whole bunch of behaviors and codes to manage it when it does occur including excusing themselves going to the ladies' room, hiding under their desk, other ways to mask it so that people aren't aware of it. Right. What That's can exactly right. What can men do to become less affected by it and make a safe place for it in the unusual times when it may occur?
0: So I actually spoke to several executives about this, and one who I spoke to said he used to be afraid that women would cry, and he did not give them candid feedback. And he said... But once he learned the facts and he understood that it was basically, you know, a 50,000-year-old biological brain, you know, the base of his brain kicking in, like once he realized that there was, he was not being rational in how he reacted to it, he said it made him – Um, Realize that he needed to give the women just as candid feedback. So he said he now, when he gives a performance review or writes up a performance review, he actually reviews them to make sure that he is giving the women the equal kind of feedback that he is giving to the men, um, which is very useful.
1: It's um, more than useful. It's essential. By the yeah. way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I am talking with Joanne Lipman, the author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Um, so, Joanne, when you one of the things about learning to understand these fundamental differences in each other that enables us to then operate differently, like I'm going to check myself, I'm going to make sure that my feedback is... Um, comprehensive. It's the same as I would give to a man, and that it's productive. Like, I think this is some of what Iris Bonet talks about, of um, engineering different ways of working so that you can override your biases. And in the book, you talked about Samantha B and Full Frontal, and a really interesting story about how they engineered around bias in order to diversify the writer's table. Could you tell us the story and some of what was so unique about it?
0: Sure, sure. So I have a chapter, and that's what she said, that really looks at blind auditions. Can, can the concept of blind auditions work for, um, for companies, for hiring? Um, and, and so what Samantha B does, and, and this all stems back to, by the way, there was this really breakthrough research that was done on symphony orchestras. Symphony orchestras used to be, you know, 90% plus male. And um, until the 80s, when uh, I think there were some sex discrimination suits, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So in, in the 80s, they, uh, the major orchestras of this country um, began auditioning um, musicians behind a screen so that they couldn't tell the gender. And suddenly, they started getting this huge influx of female musicians. So uh, it went from, you know, 99% male to, you know to, uh, I think it was about, by 1997, I think it was like 25 or 30% female. I mean, it's going up. It's pretty close to 50, yeah. 50 at this point. It's been, a, um, it's
1: been such an yeah. obvious demonstration of the bias that exists and what happened when you removed it from the selection process.
0: Right. And so the question is, could we learn something from the symphonies and apply that to corporate life? So one of the interesting examples is Samantha B. So if you look at sort of the late night comics, um, uh, they are prim- they have a writers room full of people, and those people are primarily male. Mm-hmm. And um, some of those writers rooms, um, you know, when they do the that when they when they do their first round, they do take names off and try and make it um, anonymous so that they can get a broader cross section of people. But what they end up doing is um, it's kind of the same guys with the same, um, you know, Harvard Lampoon sensibility. Um, and this, and they also, they know the format. They know what, you know, they, they, they've got their tricks, right? They know the format to send their jokes in. They know the kinds of things to say. They know the buttons to push. So Samantha B. when she started Full Frontal, um, she wanted a more diverse writer's room. So instead of just... Taking names off of applications. What they did is she and her uh, producer created a format that everyone has to submit in a prescribed format that doesn't allow for uh, it, it, it masks whether you're a professional or an amateur, and it doesn't allow for kind of any of the tricks of the trade that these guys all know.
1: So it really um, lets the content be compared to the content without the format affecting how it's perceived.
0: Right. With, and no names attached and no identities. No, um, they don't know what your history is, like where have you worked before. They don't know where you went. They don't know anything about you other than here's like, you know, here's your sensibility and your jokes. And, you know, so it's a, it's a very prescribed format. That really, really just gets to the material, and um, that led to when, as when, when they picked the people, it led to a mixed writers' room. It was like half and half, male and female. But it also led to really non-traditional candidates. They had one of the people who made it through, who was, became one of her writers, had been working at the Baltimore DMV, and <laughs> it was just really funny. And and made it through. This, that's the kind of person who would never have made it through in a traditional um, environment. And so, so, yeah, there are ways to make it work.
1: And especially when we come back to this kind of core driving business principle that we need the diversity in the room because that's what's going to promote the innovation. That's what's going to create the new inventive solutions and products and experiences that, biz- that drives business and success. And it's only going to happen if you get those new people in the room. That's exactly right. So as we're talking about these different, how the processes can affect change, there is another thing um, that you talked about in the book at length in a lot of different parts, but in particular, um, the incentives that can be created. So once you've identified talent and you're trying to bring the talent in the door, like you've actually found those great new people that you wouldn't have found otherwise, um, what's the role that incentives can play and what form should they take to actually get those people to sign and stay?
0: Right. This is so, so, so important. So first of all, um, the the first thing you need to know is that the belief in diversity has to come from the top. And I've seen way too many companies where it is outsourced to the HR department. And <clears throat> the HR department will do some unconscious bias training, et cetera. But frankly, you know, first of all, there, there are questions, as we've seen with the um, – sexual harassment cases, you know, who is the HR department really representing, and they're really representing the company's interests as opposed to the employee. But even beyond that, no matter how great your HR department is, that is not where you're changing the culture. It has to start with the CEO and, importantly, with the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. Because, you know, as you alluded to earlier, every piece of research shows that a more diverse group of employees and a more diverse leadership and more women in leadership leads to greater financial success. This is a business imperative. And if the CFO doesn't believe it and the CEO, they have to see it as being in their purview. Otherwise, it's not going to trickle down to the rest of the company.
1: Does that mean that they also have to put money behind it?
0: Well, I think that in many cases, they do put money behind it and they need to. So for example, great example um i spoke to the uh, tom falk who's the ceo of kimberly clark um talks very openly about this so he says you know a few years ago he's at a board meeting they make tampons among other things cotex and um the head of the division was giving a presentation to the board about tampons and as a man who's the head of the division and um falk says you know afterward one of the board members very politely came up to him quietly and said uh you really don't have any women to talk to us about tampons, and he said, you know, it was a kind of kick in the pants. And he went back and he looked at his org structure, and he realized that, um, you know, ninety-nine percent of their customers are female, and yet, you know, a very much smaller percentage. And I, I um, don't recall exactly, but maybe twenty percent of, of his um, top executives were female. And he said he really made him realize that he needed to be more reflective of. The people are purchasing his products. So he made a concerted effort um, to hire, to to promote, to to even out the numbers. But one of the things that he did, which I think is very important, is he built it into the incentive bonus system. Mm-hmm. So they have four buckets for their bonuses. And in one of them, it's not just hiring and getting your numbers up. It is retaining, promoting, um, and, and retention of these um uh, of, of women, and and that's part of your bonus. So it's saying not only do I believe this, but this is part of our, um, you know, these are, this is our priority. Right, and I a think core that's
1: driver a, and a core goal.
0: And I will tell you, I have done, um, you know, I moderate a lot of different kinds of panels and things, and I did one with a meeting of CEOs of major companies, um, and major Companies, you know, brand names that we know. And um, they were talking about the workforce of the future. And they talked about all sorts of things about digital transformation. They talked about income inequality. They talked about all sorts of things. But it was all men in the room. And they didn't talk about women they didn't, and I actually said to this group of (laughs) of CEOs, I said, you guys are coming up with some great ideas, but look at yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You're all guys, and I haven't heard many of you talk about that that's a problem, right? We need to actually address that as well.
1: It has to start at the top. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Sarrow, and I'm talking with Joanne Littman, author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. So, Joanne, one of the things that this also brings up is, um, the integration of work and life and family at multiple stages of career, Um, because it's a factor in bringing women in and retaining them, although clearly not the only factor. And in the book, you told um, actually a marvelously candid and illuminating story about you and your friend Carol and the differences that you experienced from the moments that you graduated from school. Because So um, with the time we had left, could you tell me tell me about Carol and what your differences were and what you learned along the way?
0: (laughs) Carol and I are wonderful friends. We were college roommates from freshman year. Um, she's brilliant, about the most brilliant person I know. She went, she graduated Yale with honors, then went on to Harvard uh, Law School, became a lawyer, and had four children. And um, here she is, this incredibly brilliant person. She tried to keep a foot in law, and um, but it was very, very difficult. And, you know, ultimately, she ended up leaving. Um, but... You know, a few years later, before you know it, you've got your kids who are um, in high school going to college, and she really wants to re engage. She's brilliant. She is, could not be a, a, a better, more ambitious, more energetic person. Um, and she couldn't get anybody to answer an email. You know, she was sending out resumes. She was applying for things. I mean, in desperation, at one point, she even took a coding class, like, oh, maybe my Harvard Law School degree isn't worth anything, so I should, like, be an entry-level coder. She just couldn't get anyone to pay attention. And the, the chapter is called Invisible Women because there are so many women who are in the same position where they have kids and they are either mommy-tracked at work or some of them choose to leave the workforce. But those kids grow up really fast, and these women um, are such a valuable resource, and they have all the energy in the world. They're much more organized and smarter than <laughs> right. they were at the beginning. And they wanted, they're want they desperate to get back into the workforce, and no one will take them. And I cite some figures. I mean, it would add trillions of dollars to our economy if we would just pay attention and bring back these invisible women. And, and by contrast, I talk about my own um, career where I actually was trying to mommy track myself. Our, uh, Carol and I have kids of the same age. And when my kids were babies, um, I really wanted to pull back. And my own bosses, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and my men, my bosses and mentors, all of them men, wouldn't let me. And, and this is so key. And I, and I talk about this as one of the key takeaways from that's what she said is uh, uh, is that they kept offering me promotions, and I kept saying no. I was happy. I was doing an editing job right? I didn't have to travel or anything like that. But they kept offering me promotions for almost five years. What they did, I didn't realize at the time how extraordinary this is. They never crossed my name off the list. So every time an opportunity came up to go abroad or to go run another bureau or you know another bigger opportunity, they would come to me first. And I would say no, and they'd say, okay, but the next time they'd come back again. So and they're... finally, after five years, they came to me with an opportunity to create what became Weekend Journal of the Wall Street Journal, and my son had just entered kindergarten. And I jumped at it, and, I, um, and, and it was the greatest thing, but I realized belatedly most women do not have that opportunity. They get written off at the beginning. And so I say in the book, um, don't make decisions for her. Right. Always give the woman the opportunity. Don't assume that she's not going to want the job or that she's not going to want to travel, etc. Ask her. Let her make that decision. Right. And so
1: there, there's a couple of really important points in this that I just want to underscore, which is that, you know, you and Carol were absolute peers. Educated at uh, you know equally prestigious programs, well equipped, went into professional fields and were having success. Got married at the same time, had your kids at the same time, but made different choices about the the juggle struggle. Um, where Carol eventually chose to um, pull out of work, you chose to stay at work. But as you said, even mommy track yourself wisely. Um, say no to the things that you thought were going to diminish your ability to be successful. In the ways that you needed to in both parts of your world. Um, Noting that just as Carol missed work, it wasn't easy to juggle these things together, right?
0: Oh my God, it was a horror. It was so (laughs) hard to juggle. Um, You know, part of it was economic necessity. We couldn't, we live in Manhattan. We couldn't afford to, my husband and I couldn't, and we were paying off his law school loans. We couldn't afford for us, for me to work part time. but it was, a, it was such, I felt guilty at work. I felt guilty at home. I think every woman is, knows that feeling, no matter what your socioeconomic status. I mean, I think for, um, you know, I was more fortunate than most. I mean, you know, we, it, women who work hourly jobs, it's impossible. Um, but even women at the peak of their careers, I remember I had lunch um once with Barbara Walters um who I got to meet at a, at a at a media thing and she invited me to lunch which was lovely and um I had read her autobiography and I said to her I I I so admire you um and I so admire you especially because I've got young kids and I see that you raised a daughter while you were had this amazing career and her response to me was there's guilt on every page
1: And I thought, wow. Yeah. It's it's something that we all experience. And so, you know, I thought that was important to share because, you know, you went through this, you each went through your own paths, but you've found your ways back. You've found your ways to increasingly robust work lives as your kids aged. But in your case, something that was super important were these men. They really were your allies long before we talked, ever had the term ambassadors in the workplace.
0: That's exactly right, and, and I didn't even realize it at the time. I, I don't think I frankly really appreciated it until I started researching the book and saw how unusual it was what they did for me. But I, I have to say I feel like I've, I have paid that forward because I do feel like I reach out to, at least I try certainly as a manager, to reach out to young parents to always say, okay, you know, maybe you didn't put your hand up for this opportunity, but let's talk about what might you want for your future. Like I've been very cognizant about, and and these days it's men as well as women, about saying, yeah, I understand the kids are little and right now you don't want to travel, but let's talk about how you see your future and let me give you this opportunity. And I've been in many rooms where – There's a job opening, and and it's coming up, and somebody in the room will say, oh, well, so-and-so, this woman would be fabulous for it. And somebody else in the room will say, yeah, but she'll never want it. Like, never mind, because she's not going to want it because her kids are little, or she loves where she lives. She's not going to want to move. And they cross up the list. And every time I interrupt, and I say, wait, 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 let's ask her first. Right. Right? And, so and stop so
1: assuming important. that you know yeah. it's that it's that benevolent sexism. Stop assuming that they can't do it, don't want to do it, would choose not to do it. Give them the opportunity to let they let them say no until they're ready.
0: That's exactly right. And I can just add an addendum to Carol. So after this brutal, brutal experience of months and months and months of like basically no one even answering an email. Um, she got a foot in the door as a lowest of the lowest, a document reviewer at a law firm. But it was turned out they, as soon as they got her in the door and they saw how brilliant she is, um, she's now a full-fledged lawyer at that firm. She had to like retake the bar and everything else, but she is now um, you know back on her way to a high-powered career. But. The fact that she had to go through that sort of pain and humiliation and how hard it was for her to get her foot back in the door is insane, insane.
1: Yeah, it's wasting talent, and it's all based on biases.
0: But there are tens of thousands of women who are just like her, who are out there, who are ready to to, you know, pour themselves into a career, and we need to take advantage of that.
1: Absolutely. So on that note, if there are people who want to find more about the book, the work you're doing, where you're speaking, where can they find out about you?
0: Sure. So I've got a website, joannelitman.com. Um, and, you know, please follow me on Twitter, at Joann And And um, there's a link for my website, but you could also go directly to book. Dot com And there we've got some downloadable resources for That's What She Said. We've got, um, you know, uh, we've got a mailing list. We've got um, the, the implicit bias test. Fantastic. So to go to and taste test yourself. Yeah, a lot of resources. Joanne, thank you so much for
1: joining us today, and thank you all of you for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at seriesxm.com, Follow us on Twitter at bizradio111 or me at Laura's Arrow. Special thank you to my guest today, Joanne Littman. I'm Laura Arrow, and this is Women at Work.